0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. So this week, we'll be featuring another special guest, very well known in the world of finance, and that is Dr. Richard Smith, also called the Doctor of Uncertainty. Dr. Smith is a fintech entrepreneur, the CEO of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, and author of the Risk Rituals Newsletter. He studied mathematics at UC Berkeley and has a PhD in system science from the Watson School of Engineering. He can be seen regularly in Forbes Magazine, on CNN, Market Watch, and many other media outlets. In today's conversation, we spend quite a bit of time discussing big tech, the latest congressional action to rein in the most dominant companies in the world, the use of user data, and the effect thereof on the stock market. His upcoming book is called The Risk Manifesto. On another note, I would like to apologize if the audio doesn't sound quite so good on my side as we did have a technical issue with my microphone, but I'm sure it won't get in the way of a great interview. So without further ado, please join us with Dr. Richard Smith.
1: Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil.
2: If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it, you'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Podcast.
0: So Dr. Smith, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Brian. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I mean, there's so much that that you've commented on through your newsletter and then in the media that uh the the markets right now, I mean, I don't think we could have a better time between what you're seeing with the new Delta variants and big tech and the spending. I'm like anything you could think of that would throw the markets all over the place we're having it
1: there's a lot going on that's for sure
0: yeah what do you see um you know maybe just to start there what are you seeing right now is maybe the the biggest factor that's moving the markets one direction or another
1: well you know i actually started my interest in investing um and trading in the area of seasonality so um, I'm not sure if you've looked into seasonal patterns in in markets. You've probably heard of sell in May and go away as an <laughs> example. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are, you know, seasonal patterns <laughs> that repeat year after year in markets. I mean, you know, it sounds overly simplified, but um, it keeps happening year after year. One of the strongest ones is if you buy you know the the market um, around the end of October and sell in early January. And something like over the last hundred years, you know this has produced ninety percent winners. Um, so right now, you know we have a period of seasonal weakness in uh, late July into early August. And I think that this, you know what we're seeing right now is fairly um, predictable in terms of of uh, the typical se- seasonal weakness that we see in the summertime, especially in late July and early August. So I'm not surprised to see this at all. Um, but then, you know, the media has to go and make up a story uh, about why, you know, we're seeing a correction in the markets or a rally in the markets. And um, uh, they grabbed onto the Delta variant story uh, with the recent correction that we had only yep. to have that story disappear the next day when the markets <laughs> rallied, right? so. Um, yep. hey, it's tough to be a financial journalist.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I sympathize with them. Um, but yep. uh, but still, um, you know, I think what we're seeing is something that we typically see around this time each year. So,
0: yeah. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, too, because I often comment on the media. It's like it's frustrating sometimes because you, you turn it on and every day it seems the market is surging, the market is roaring, or the market is crashing. And it's like, you look at, you know, the little ticker, and you see that the market's up 0.32%. And I I feel like, you know, we kind of ought to reserve some of these uh, verbs for real occasions, and not just the everyday occurrence. But I guess, you know, that's what the media is in the business of doing is just trying to shock the viewer or the reader. And and order them in. And I think a lot of people get confused by what's really going on in the marketplace.
1: Well, I think the confusion is, uh, on purpose. And I think this is a bit of a pickle that we've gotten ourselves into as a society. Um, I wrote an article recently that I, uh, titled the day the internet died. And, uh, it's a dramatic title, but, uh, Uh, What I said was the day the internet died was the day that Google decided to monetize its search algorithm with advertising dollars. Hmm. And so that model is the model that drives the big tech attention economy that we live in right now, which I also call television 2.0. The internet today really is a form of television and uh, it's a form of television that the broadcast networks could only ever have dreamed of in their wildest imaginations. because you know, before they the broadcast networks had to like hire people to go sit in your home, like from Nielsen, you know, and yep. find out what you were doing, what you were watching, and how you were reacting to it. But now, uh, with technology being what it is today, with the surveillance capabilities of these big tech companies, um, you know, they're able to basically track the movements of our eyes and you know the way we linger over you know some uh, section of a page, how long we spend on it. Uh, it's just you know, um, phenomenal uh, and kind of terrifying when you think about how much they're able to influence our behavior, you know, and then that ultimately we're not their real customers, right? We're their users. Their real customers are the advertisers. And so media companies, you know, have to fight like everybody else for attention. Uh, Attention is best captured when you're sensational. And, um, you know, so to me, that is uh, a real predicament that we're in, in our society, um, because I don't think it really, Encourages um, common sense or reflection uh, or long-term thinking, you know, and long-term value creation at all. So yeah, real uphill battles agree. in today's world.
0: <laughs> I think you, you you hit the nail on the head, and I mean, it's difficult to be a rational investor when you're just bombarded with what are kind of irrational thoughts all the time uh, that are just seeking your attention. And yeah, I, I love that. And
1: they're all trying to sell you something,
0: right? It's true. Yeah. It's like, there's a motive everywhere you turn. There's a a particular motive. When did that happen that Google did that, that they began to kind of monetize that algorithm? It
1: was in probably around 2000. Um, I don't know the exact date, uh, but it was around 2000 or 2001. Hmm. And I, you know, I was, I was, uh, an early internet user. I was in graduate school back then actually, um, you know i've been using the internet even before the World Wide web stage and uh you know i, I remember it well when google made a uh you know very epochal decision let's just say <laughs> to uh to finally you know earn a profit through advertising and then facebook followed i don't know if you saw um, that documentary on netflix the social dilemma it was pretty uh no pretty but- impactful um it was the number one uh you know um movie or you know video on netflix for the whole month when it launched and uh really created quite a stir it was put out by a group called um uh humane the the center for humane technology um Mm -hmm. you know which implies that technology today is not humane Um, And this, you know, the guy who founded the Center for Humane Technology was a a Google, um, not executive, but, you know, a a developer, and uh, hooked up with um, uh, a guy who wrote the book called Zucked, um, who was an early investor in Facebook. And, uh, you know, these are insiders who were criticizing Facebook and and what Facebook has become. And, uh, and Facebook, you know uh, got their model from Google. So, um, so that is the internet and, you know, the world that we live in today, where you have these platforms, right. And -hmm. then you have media distributed on the platforms and the job of the media on the platforms is basically to kind of polarize people and to engage them and capture our attention and keep it there for as long as possible. Right. Right. Yep. and they're using behavioral psychology uh, basically you know bF Skinner uh, work to um, to figure out you know how to train us and how to capture our attention and hold it for as long as possible um, because that's what drives valuations in the cat in their, in the markets and uh, incredibly you know uh, I just, was looking at something the other day, the top five companies in the market today are, you know, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google with Tesla being number six, right? (laughs) So, yeah.
0: um, Tech heavy world that we're in.
1: And, you know, that's not just tech, right? I mean, there's a lot of tech besides Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and, Microsoft, you know, they're really software companies, right? They're not really, I mean, they're not like making microchips, right? (laughs) They're not. um, So it's just, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting time that we live in, to say the least.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And it it seems, is simple in a way like when you phrase it the way that you did that you know ultimately they're trying to attract your attention keep your attention as long as possible and then they can sell more ads based on that it seems like a formula that's existed since the beginning of advertising but the internet obviously has made it so different i I don't know you know it's almost hard to remember what it was like before the internet you know of how we kind of digested information every day
1: yeah Absolutely. And um, look, I, you know, I'm not uh, a Luddite and I'm not um, saying we can go back to, a, you know, a better time in, in days gone by. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the pace has been picking up and I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And that kind of brings up another question I had. I don't know if you saw the article, um, the op ed that Trump had wrote in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, uh, about why he was suing big tech. Um, But it's interesting. It goes on with uh, one of the the points you had emailed me about was with the House Judiciary Committee passing some bills or moving forward with bills uh, to try and curb the power of big tech. Can you tell us a little bit of, of what's happening or is this all just kind of fluff? Like, Is this going anywhere?
1: I don't think it's fluff. I do think that there's a serious uh, movement to um, rein in big tech, let's say. Uh, It's about the only bipartisan topic that I can think of in the past 10 years, frankly, (laughs) right? Other than spending more money. Um, But uh, so, you know, I do think that everybody realizes that, Things need to change. Uh, the question is whether or not that bipartisanship can really survive long enough, um, you know, in today's uh, polemical environment, right? To mm-hmm. um, to actually get some legislation done. So I am cautiously optimistic because I think something simply has to be done, and I think that pretty much everybody knows that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Okay. And what, um, what would that look like if these go through? Cause I think there's kind of two narratives here. You hear a lot of people saying, you know, Amazon could be a monopoly. Like, do we try and start identifying monopolies, breaking up monopolies or preventing them? But then like what Trump was going after and got a lot of attention with the lawsuit and then the article had not much to do with that, but more so to do with censorship and that technically these, the Facebooks, the social media empires, that they're news outlets and they're not governed like news outlets, even though that's where so many people get their news. So what are, you know, the House Judiciary Committee, what are they trying to do? What, which are they attacking? or Are they going after all of that?
1: Well, I think the House Judiciary Committee, um, is more focused on um the the issues of the platforms themselves right that that uh, amazon is putting you know is basically inviting businesses onto their platform and then learning about those businesses and then uh developing their own products to displace those businesses so that they're getting competitive intelligence from their uh from the users, you know the businesses that are on their platform and then they're coming up with competitive products and they're using their, their heft to basically expand into other markets. Uh, there's also the concern about um, like Facebook acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp, for example. So they're big companies with massive uh, you know, cash um, hordes are essentially buying out competitors um, so that's another one that's a concern. Uh, there's a law or a proposed law about putting the burden of proof on the companies themselves when they want to acquire a competitor to prove that this is not, you know, anti-competitive, instead of the uh, the regulators having to prove that it's anti-competitive. So those are all platform issues, basically. That you know, Amazon, Facebook, Google have too much control of the marketplace through their platforms and are using that leverage and that privilege uh, to abuse their position and basically uh, have monopolies in their with their platforms. So that's one big issue that the House Judiciary Committee is looking at you know with with several of the bills that they've put forward at this point.
0: Okay. So
1: the other one, though, that really interests me is what's called data portability. So what does that mean? You know, right now you're on Facebook. If you leave Facebook, you don't get to take your data with you and take it over to, you know, another platform. Right. So this is to me what is really not not well understood. So I believe personally that the power of the big tech companies comes from the data that they are able to accumulate and the intelligence that they're able to extract from that data. And that it's really their, um, you know, their collection of data and what they're able to glean from that data, the proprietary ways they're able to use that data, which is the real source of their power. So, um, you know, why is Amazon buying a movie studio? Is it just- To make more money. Is it just economies (laughs) of scale, right? Um, I don't think so. So I believe that they're buying a movie studio because they get phenomenal intelligence on their users by watching, by learning which movies they like, how long they spend watching them, how long they spend watching movies in general, right? And, uh, and think about how that can then influence um, their ability to sell other goods and services and advertising to those users now that they know what movies they watch. They know what we buy, they know what movies we watch. Um, They know, you know, when we're online, they know what we're talking about in our homes. Um, All of that is just phenomenal amounts of data and a phenomenal power and a phenomenal, um, you know, uh, resource that they have for ultimately uh, subtly and sometimes not so subtly redirecting our behaviors to their uh, um, profitable bottom line.
0: And now what, I guess what the contrarian would say is, well, what's so bad about that? You know, if if previously in history, I had to shop around and kind of find out exactly what it was that I wanted, Mm -hmm. if now a seller can almost identify for me what it is that I want. So I log onto my computer and, oh, there's the new skis for an intermediate level skier and that skis in the Northeast and icy conditions. Perfect. Like, and immediately I have that at my availability is that a bad thing or or what could be bad about that
1: well first of all um i believe that they're able to actually influence what you think what we think we want right so they put things in front of us that we might not have known that we wanted right (laughs) yeah and uh and so that's a that's a pretty big power right and then additionally, once they're able to really control um, that narrative, then they can reduce the quality of those products. You know, That's one of the things we've seen with Amazon. There's been a uh, incredible you know, explosion in um, you know, third-party sellers and stuff coming from all over the world of questionable quality. But because Amazon's the only place we go anymore to buy stuff, right? Uh, no longer do they have that competitive pressure on them to deliver the best products because we're all there, right? And if it says Amazon's choice, then, hey, you know, that we we do it. So that's an incredible power. And, you know, this is, there's a new head of the FTC, right, Lena Khan. And uh, she wrote a hundred page uh, note, it's called, in the Yale Law Journal. I think called the Amazon antitrust paradox. That's a long name. And <laughs> um, it's, you know, I skew conservative myself and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I don't think she's particularly conservative and she's young, she's like 35 years old <laughs> or something. So uh, uh-huh. she's a millennial herself, right? Um, but what she points out is that, you know, I think she has this uh, often quoted line in her note saying, it's as if Jeff Bezos, you know, studied antitrust law and designed Amazon to, uh, you know, circumvent modern antitrust law. And so you think about, you know, Amazon is always focused on price and lowering price, right? Yeah. Well, if you can lower price and you can lower quality, right, and people can't tell that you're lowering quality, because the competitors who could say, hey, I've got better quality are no longer visible to you. That's a, um, unintended consequence of an exclusive focus on price, you know, that has allowed Amazon to become, you know, the, the, the market, uh, um, you know, dominant market position that it has today.
0: Hmm. that's yeah it's a great point i mean that it all comes back to square one of eliminating competition and yeah uh, so
1: getting back to the data portability idea right now imagine you could go to amazon you know and you could say you know what amazon uh i want to take all the data that you've collected on me and uh and i'm going to decide who can see that data so what if i could go to walmart you know, and Walmart could uh, offer me an incentive to move my data from Amazon over to Walmart. That would produce a lot more competition in the marketplace because I think Amazon has an unfair advantage by the amount of data that they've collected. And I don't think that they're transparent about it. You know, I think that we are completely naive about the amount of data that is being collected on us and you know I personally believe Brian that there should be something some kind something akin to uh the HIPAA laws that we have in medicine you know where you control uh your medical records and you get to say who those medical records go to or don't go to right um and I think we should have something similar when it comes to our online data so um, have
0: you seen anyone else? I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Have you seen anyone else that's kind of adopted that thought? Do you have other peers um, that are I have on board seen with this? other
1: people mention, uh, something like HIPAA laws for data. So I don't think it's a widely held position right now. Um, but I'm not the only one who's, uh, suggested it, but I really mm-hmm. do think that, um, There's incredible power in the data that we're generating. We all sign these in unreadable terms and conditions where we basically sign away everything that we do on these platforms. And um, I would love to see the government actually create a public utility where we could all um, maintain and control our own data and, and be in control of what, you know, vendors and services we allow to interact with our data. I think that would put, you know, incredible power back in the hands of consumers that I just don't think we realize how much big tech knows about us, how deep and extensive the surveillance and the insights are, and, uh, and how that's subtly influencing our behavior every day. And, um, just to bring this back to finance for a minute, I think this is what's happening with Robinhood. Hmm. So Robinhood is, you know, a financial technology company out of Silicon Valley. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's has imported this free services model into retail broker dealer, uh, into the retail broker-dealer marketplace, right? Free trades, Robinhood started the free trades. Robinhood's customers are not its users. Robinhood's customers are the market makers like Citadel Securities and Susquehanna and Virtu who pay Robinhood for um, the orders that they execute on behalf of Robinhood's customers, okay?
0: Mm -hmm. Can you- and I, I'm pretty familiar with this, but can you p- perhaps kind of dumb that down for some of our listeners that aren't totally certain, like what a market maker is and the connection between like a Citadel and a Robinhood?
1: Yes. So um, if you go onto Robinhood and you're going to buy, um, you know, one share of Tesla for $650 or whatever it is today, um, then Robinhood has agreements with certain market makers, and these are, um, it's not the stock exchanges. It's not the New York Stock Exchange. It's not the NASDAQ. These are companies like Citadel Securities is one of the biggest, and they will actually fill your order. And there are some constraints on how they will fill your order. They have to do it at um, the national, something you know at least as good as the national best bid, offer so um so they have some constraints on you know the range of prices that they can execute your trade at but they actually are the ones who uh are who sell you the shares or find somebody else to buy you know to sell the shares that you want to buy correct yep and um you know we could spend a whole uh, hour yeah, talking can. just about yeah. this right so yeah i don't want to go too much into the nuts no of, we can of get but, back to
0: the data that's fine
1: um what's really remarkable and i'm pretty sure brian that this is unique to robin hood that they get paid by the market makers a percent of the spread between the bid and the ask. So the bid is you know what somebody's willing to pay to acquire a share and the ask is what somebody's asking to sell a share or an option, right? Mm-hmm. So Robinhood gets paid by the market makers a percent of the difference between what somebody's willing to buy for and what somebody's willing to sell for. That's called the spread. So based on that simple fact, Brian, that Robinhood gets a percent of the spread, what are they incentivized to do?
0: Essentially have a larger spread there.
1: Have a larger spread, right? So- um,
0: Which is essentially- Some of the largest spreads
1: we've seen in history were on GameStop during you know, the week or two in January when GameStop went absolutely berserk, right? Went from like $10 to $400. And then you had options trading on GameStop, which is even wider spreads. And so this is a, um, to me, a profound illustration of this principle that Robinhood's users are not their customers, right? Um, And that Robinhood uh, is basically able to direct their customers into actions that are highly profitable to Robinhood and of questionable profitability to Robinhood's customers. And I think
0: And that's something not to to interject, but I don't think less than 1% of the users or investors on that platform would understand that or realize that. And in right. pre Robinhood, before this is kind of made some headlines, I don't think anyone really noticed that, you know, whether they went from one platform to another, that there is that opportunity they could accidentally be buying at a higher price than their peer on another platform. And um, I mean, I don't wanna go down a whole nother rabbit hole, but you would think there'd be more strict regulation as far as what I'm seeing is the best price I can buy at this particular moment in time.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't actually think that Robinhood's customers are getting worse execution than other platforms, um, you know, it and there's plenty of arguments that are made that, these market makers provide a great service that they save retail investors money um, on the execution costs, right? Retail mm-hmm. investors get a rebate, Robinhood gets a rebate because these market makers are able to give better prices than say somebody would get if they went straight to the New York Stock Exchange, mainly because the New York Stock Exchange, um, their minimum spread is a penny, right? So they can't trade you know in increments less than a penny they can't buy or sell, right? But market makers can. So they come in and they do fractions of a penny and uh, and they kind of um, undercut the exchanges in that regard. So if you look at it technically, hey, Robinhood's customers made all these trades um, and they got a better cost of execution from the market makers than they would have if they went straight to the stock exchange. But this is a you know red herring <laughs> argument because Would Robinhood's customers have made all those trades in the first place? And would have they been trading those specific things that they're being, you know, gamified into trading by Robinhood, right? Uh, If they hadn't been in that Robinhood environment in the first place, if Robinhood's business model hadn't been, you know, payment for order flow as a percent of spread, then would Robinhood really have been incentivized to make it You know, super easy to trade GameStop or options on GameStop or to give you a free share of GameStop, you know, when you become a customer or to, you know, present uh, options to you, even though you're a totally novice investor that's never traded options before, but it's so easy now, you know, they make it so easy, you know, access does not equal success, <laughs> you know? Yep, yeah, Like uh, it's like saying, saying you know, <laughs> you're gonna go to the World Series of poker, right? And because they're gonna get you a seat at the table, you know, uh, for free, that, uh, that means somehow you're gonna make money. No, you're gonna get your clock cleaned, right? Yeah. And uh, so access in to the markets Uh, has very little to do with success. And it's actually, you know, primarily about monetizing the ineffective behaviors of their user base, um, you know, for the, the profit of others.
0: It's, it's so interesting. I mean, I know we've touched on two things that are somewhat related in big tech and in Robinhood, but it seems like you're drawing a connection here that both big tech and Robinhood are kind of—I uh, don't want to say using their customers, but they kind of are using their users to have other customers. They are so,
1: using their users, and there's another saying that uh, there's only two industries that call their customers users: one are you know drug dealers, and the other is, <laughs> is uh, you know big technology companies.
0: Wow! <laughs> so it sounds like you're not a fan right now of big tech. Is that safe to say?
1: Uh, I am not a fan of big tech, Uh, but really, you know, in the end, Brian, um, we've done this to ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? We've opted in for the convenience. We've taken the bait of free. And the only thing that's going to change lead to really effective change is if people really start taking more personal responsibility, more accountability for being aware of how the online world really works and choosing to go with um, you know service providers that aren't using these deceitful practices um, you know to monetize us in ways that we don't understand.
0: And that's—I—I I feel that that's almost easier said than done. Oh, you know where it's absolutely
1: <laughs> easier said than done.
0: Yeah, I'm almost like, how do you work around it? I mean, for instance, just recently, we had a family member. We sent a, a list for our daughter's graduation, like some uh, gift ideas on Amazon. Yeah. Yep. And um, he pretty much just said, you know, don't send me these. Send me something else. I'm not using Amazon anymore.
2: hmm
0: And we were almost like, I don't know where you go then. <laughs> right. And, and, it's yeah it's almost like how do we rewind the clock so far to get back to where we can make other choices that aren't going to disrupt our lives
1: yep it's going to involve some sacrifice it's going to involve a little pain um but i think that you know as we come to understand more and more what's really happening how choice Um, even though it seems like it's proliferating is actually, you know, constricting. Um, I think more and more people are going, you know what, I'm not okay with this. And, uh, you know, I need to start doing something about it, you know, and we see what's happening with children, you know, I mean, it's like suicide rates among teenage girls, gone up almost lockstep with facebook's user uh you know rates like that stuff is crazy that's not okay you know and society is is gonna wake up to this i think they already are starting to wake up to it somewhat so um the fact that the social dilemma was such a huge hit on netflix was encouraging meanwhile the irony of it actually being on netflix was uh um you know not lost on some of us, Um, you know, I canceled my Netflix subscription because I just uh, am not comfortable with the way they run their business and with the, um, you know, the the sleight of hand that's so um, fundamental to their economic enterprise. Right. And that's what that's what really concerns me the most is just the the deception and the sleight of hand of it all. Uh, and I long for more transparency and that's why the data portability, uh, you know, which is probably the least likely to succeed (laughs) because a big part of how technology got to be so dominant today is because of national security issues. You know, people don't realize, uh, what, how important national security is, in big technology um companies uh you know you see china cracking down right now on its big tech companies and a big reason is because those tech companies have data that uh can be used to get intelligence on the chinese government and on the chinese military there was a uh, there was a story in the wall street journal last year about a group of graduate students out of the University of Alabama, I think, who you know, using just like marketing um, data apps, were able to like use geolocation data to track the movements of Russian generals throughout Eastern Europe. And were able to give intelligence to the US Department of Defense on um, movements of Russian generals that even the U.S. Department of Defense didn't have, and this all came out of public domain data that basically helped you do, mar- you know, targeted marketing using Facebook and using <laughs> geolocation. Uh, we're able to actually see movements. So, um, so there are national security issues. You know, the government part. Of, you know, back after nine eleven. It was, hey, we got to find a needle in a haystack. Hey, Google, you know, the surveillance that you're able to do is really incredible. We could we should we should collaborate so we can make sure we don't get another terrorist attack. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, so yep. these and are that tough even
1: issues. They're tough, you know, and I'm not saying I've got all to... the answers by any stretch.
0: Well, um, these problems are so complex. I don't think anyone would have all the answers. Yeah. But that even brought to mind, as you were saying that it was. Um, I can't remember the incident, but where the government wanted to get into, I guess it was the attackers or I don't know if it was the Boston Marathon bombing or something where they wanted to get into the iPhone, right? And Apple would not allow the government, you know, to get into the iPhone. Right. And there was that, I guess that was maybe a few years ago. I can't quite pinpoint the issue, but um, yeah, that was a, a great example of big tech colliding with, you know, the government there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, these are real issues. They're, they're existential issues for how we're going to, you know, be organized as a society and where power is going to, you know, reside. And, yep. um, and I think they're issues that everybody, you know, really should spend a little time educating ourselves about, um, you know, what are these bills? Uh, read, uh, it's a kind of a big book, but if you haven't read Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, um, that's an eye-opener. Uh, Surveillance Valley is another one that's that's uh, shocking. And um, so I think it's really important that we understand these issues. You know, my biggest fear about what's going on in Congress and the legislation is that it will, you know, ultimately be defeated by just uh um you know muddy politics yep and uh the mud wrestling of politics and
0: and that's something i i, I know we don't need to dive head first into a yeah. political uh debate of any sort but right. it does seem and correct me if i'm wrong i think this is kind of obvious that if you look at the big tech companies these are the richest people in world's history. You talk, you know, the Gates, the Bezos, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. It seems like one common theme amidst all of them is they're pretty far left, which almost seems kind of like a contradiction of sorts that you have Mm -hmm. people with a liberal mentality that are, I don't want to say socialist, but they lean in that sort of uh, vein. And they then on the other side are almost like the greatest capitalists that ever lived. It's- it's just so contradictory and i don't know if there's a point to that but it's just a, an odd observation almost like a guilty conscience that could be there and what effect does yeah. that have on the whole system when it's kind of like how they used to say oh hollywood's all liberal you know they they garner so much spotlight for a liberal cause now it's not like hollywood to the left or wall street to the right it's it's big tech like you said and they all seem on the left. So how do you? How does all that play out?
1: Um, I mean, that's where these concerns about censorship come in, right? And then you combine that with media, which is also biased to the left. But a lot of this comes out of the academic institutions, right? That uh, teach this, um, basically socialist philosophies. And um, and then, yeah, you have all these people that make all this money and feel uh, guilty about it and that they need to do something to, you know, uh, help others, right? Um, so that's really uh, kind of antithetical to the idea of individual freedom. Um, these are really more kind of collectivist Uh, approaches to organizing society. And look, like I said earlier, these are tough questions because there are incredible um, national security issues. and, And, you know, we have the most dominant companies in the world coming out of the United States. What does that do for the United States? So I'm not saying that there are simple answers to these questions but it certainly does lean that way. And I think that we need to start to lean back more in the direction of um, helping people really to learn to think for themselves instead of telling them what to think and um, giving people power, like control over their own data, for example, Mm -hmm. would be an incredible uh, reversal of the trends that are happening. And I think that's a big part of, what is driving the uh, cryptocurrency um, community and the decentralization movement, this idea of more custody of our digital assets, more privacy. Um, so I do think that things are happening that are helping the pendulum you know swing a little bit away from the overly centralized um, and uh, semi-socialist, world that we're, you know, seem to have evolved into, especially over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. And I I wanted to ask you too, like, it's so much of what we talk about these American companies of Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple, but it's, it is a global issue. I I mean, if you think China's the other superpower and, you know, Russia seems to just kind of be this force that's always annoying us or hacking us and Mm -hmm. are they... You alluded to it a little bit earlier on, but are they experiencing similar issues? And Because they're such a different country than, you know, a more capitalist, free America. And then you have over there just communists. But it seems like their big tech is almost perhaps interjecting a little capitalism into a kind of a communist government.
1: Yeah, but it it is a one party uh, government. And... Um, you know, the, the things that they're able to do, uh, because they don't have the legal infrastructure that we have here in the United States, um, Mm -hmm. are, uh, a bit jarring to those of us from the West. So, but yeah, these are big issues for them. Um, and, uh, you know, they have legitimate concerns about, uh, the U S government's ability to use these big tech companies to get, you know, surveillance out on uh, other countries. So one of the shocking um, revelations in Surveillance Valley was that the TOR network, I don't know if you've heard of TOR, the onion router. um, No. Supposedly this, uh, you know, hyper secure internet where nobody can track you. And, um, you know, it was actually invented by the US government as a way to, you know have, um, especially like foreign operatives, be able to communicate over the internet in uh, hostile um, countries. So uh, the internet is a military technology. <laughs> it came out of the military. Uh, it still has military applications today. And um, you know, the world is not one big, peaceful, happy family. So um, the internet is always going to be part of a military calculus. And um, you know, that makes it a fundamentally thorny and difficult issue to uh, really wrap our heads around and not get kind of um, seduced into simplistic, uh,
0: positions. Yeah, no, I think that was well said. And maybe one more thing, if I could add or pick your brain on, I know we're talking a lot of tech here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you saw on 60 Minutes, I guess it was a couple months ago, uh, there was a special segment on the semiconductors. And you know how the almost the overwhelming majority, especially the very advanced ones come out of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And US and China, you know, the big two superpowers here, kind of fighting for as much of this semiconductor shortage as they can get their hands on. Yeah. What does what does that hold for the future? I felt like there were a lot of parallels with that current day dilemma and some past instances we've seen in oil with kind of a a flight to who can get to oil. You know, it's that liquid gold. I feel like that's what the, the microchips have become almost to like a Taiwan.
1: I think that's true. You know, I think Taiwan is a real hot spot in terms of uh, what's going on globally and geopolitically. Um, and I think that you know part of the lesson of the pandemic has been that these global supply chains um, are uh, a little more problematic than everybody realized. And so I think these supply chain issues are going to be with us for a while. I think supply chains are being restructured and I think that the world is increasingly realizing that supply chains are actually national security issues. So, um, so you know, I don't think it's gonna, um, all, all the globalist uh, tendencies that we've been, <laughs> um, that have been developing over the past few decades are gonna be swept away, but I do think there are adjustments underway. Uh, and, and people are rethinking supply chains from a national security perspective. And Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing is is uh, right at the nexus of that uh, restructuring for sure.
0: Yeah, and so is that to say like whenever we become too dependent on some something vital, too dependent on another country for that vital resource that yeah, we've got to quickly make it ourselves, is that the solution or just make <laughs> them our best friend?
1: I think that uh, it's going to be some of both, but we definitely can't be in a position where um, we can't get the semiconductors that we need to run our economy uh, and run our military, because you know they're being held hostage by a hostile foreign government. That's yeah. not going to work.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's just there's so much going on. It's. Uh, you have a conversation like this and uh, sometimes it's exciting other times it's just scary of so many different factors at play
1: yeah so. so it's a interesting time but it's also an exciting time i think if anybody um you know these are complicated issues but they're meaty issues right and they're consequential issues and it's great to be able to dig into them and and wrestle with them and And then you know, in the small ways that we can, to uh, try to help create uh, the future that that we want to create. And I think that's one of the important things that we need to think about more as investors, right? Mm -hmm. Is how we allocate our capital, um, and does it really reflect our values or not? You know, like think about all the index investing in the S and P five hundred, for example. So yep. I can't do that anymore because I'm not comfortable with the dominance of big tech, and you know they make up over 20% of the S&P 500 at this point. So if I put my money in an index fund, I'm investing in big tech. Um, yep. If you don't like Monsanto, for example, you know, and you want organic food, you can't be investing in the S&P 500. So I think there's an incredible opportunity for people, you know, this this interest from young people in the markets is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just encourage us all to, you know, see the markets as, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's exclusively a place of social activism, you know, but I do think that um, our values and the future that we want for ourselves and our children um, is something that we have to think about as investors um, and have be part of our calculus, you know, and not just uh, um, yeah, how much money we're going to make, right?
0: And that's another tricky one. I'm glad you kind of segued into that. I know we talked earlier about you know vote with your dollars, yeah, but that's almost difficult to kind of act on, you know, to say you know I don't want to put my money here, even though that's where I'm fairly confident from a math standpoint or financial standpoint, that's where I can make more money. Um, do you think that's something that's going to resonate or is the average American just going to say, you know, I I can't sacrifice my own dollars just to make a little point that it's kind of like those people that say, well, I'm not going to go vote this year because what's my one little vote count. You know, it's, it's similar, but now you're asking them to do that with their money. Um, do you think that can have an impact or do you think it's going to have to be more led from the government or, uh, I think, it's, you know, gonna,
1: the- I think it can have an impact. I think it's going to start small, you know, I'm actually building some financial technology that, uh, I believe people can use to identify companies that, you know, have good prospects of success, but that also, um, better reflect their personal values and and that we can all have, you know, portfolios of stocks of 15 to 25 companies that we actually know a little bit about. Maybe we read the, you know, at least the first couple of pages of the annual reports and that that represent a a fairly balanced, diversified basket of stocks. So and cryptocurrencies, for example. So so I think that uh, in some ways, Brian, we're all being forced into the asset management business And, uh, you know, we're all hedge funds today, because there's nowhere to hide, you know, you can't earn interest anywhere. And, um, and really, the world is kind of becoming increasingly financialized. I see social media as basically kind of a mirror of financial, um, electronic financial markets and having kind of grown out of electronic financial markets, which is pretty interesting way to look at it. Um yep. but I do think that financial technology and user experience you know have evolved to such a sophisticated level that it really is within our reach for people to build and manage their own portfolios of individual equities um or you know assets and uh, and to do it in a in a pretty savvy way you know with the support of of machine learning and um, artificial intelligence so. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's within reach. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of young people in particular, it's important to them. Uh, yeah, it's important and it's, to me, you know, so.
0: And it's true, because as as we're having this conversation, I thought of, uh, you know, there's a lot of clean energy funds and yeah. uh, green funds that are out there that started out as kind of like an altruistic idea, yep. uh, but now may just be part of a sound financial portfolio, you know as yeah we see more and more clean energy actually coming, you know, to the forefront. So that's, uh, yeah, hopefully there's more hope, uh, to go along with that. I think but, so. Yeah, no, very interesting. I know this was a very, uh, wide ranging conversation and, and we could just keep going and going, especially on technologies sure. <laughs> just in AI reference. It's just so fascinating. Yes. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to, to perhaps cover or, or mention, you know, to our audience here?
1: Um I would just applaud everybody's interest in the markets. I think that the, the influence that we can have in markets is uh, undervalued. And you know, uh, it's a lot of fun too. So I'm really excited about the younger generation's interest in markets. Uh, you know, I was concerned for a number of years about the lack of interest. so I think it's a really exciting time. And I would encourage everybody to keep digging into it, and you know, take a long-term view, and don't let your, you know, attention be controlled by, um, you know, the the uh, kind of short-term slot machine dopamine hit <laughs> <laughs> internet that uh, you know everybody's spending so much time on today. So um, it's yeah. really fun to be an investor. It's fun to learn about companies. It's fun to be owners of businesses and uh, you know, I yep. I think uh, if we all take a little more personal responsibility for that, we can all help create a better world.
0: I like it. I love it. And just perhaps in closing, I know you said that you got into this whole realm with started, correct me if I'm wrong, but on the interest for seasonality investing.
2: Well, that- I got
1: started in investing back in 1998, you know, when the internet, uh, um, boom and subsequent bust was happening mm-hmm. uh, into 2000, and one of the first things I really started looking into after um, you know my uh, heights of glory and depths of despair <laughs> that uh, were you know uh, shared by many during that time um, was seasonality. So one of the first websites I ever developed was called SeasonalTrader.com. It's still mm-hmm. out there today, actually um and then I got and then I helped bring trailing stop losses to the world through a site that I developed called tradestops.com and um, and now I'm developing some new financial technology which uh, is not publicly available yet but you can get a, a little idea at risksmith.com
0: at risksmith.com and that's what I thought would might be a good closing point is um You know, for our listeners out there, I know there's a lot of millennials uh, that are probably hearing this, anything particularly from just a a general education standpoint, be it a favorite book or uh, something that you've seen that you might recommend as a good starting point for someone that says, hey, I want to learn some more about all of this.
1: Yeah, well, I write uh, regularly at drrichardsmith.com. So anybody can sign up there and uh, um, follow my work and the risk rituals, but you know, a lot of my um, interest is in behavioral finance and behavioral psychology. It's part of the reason why I'm so upset at big tech, because I know too much about it and I know how they're abusing behavioral psychology. (laughs) So, um, but a lot of what I've learned uh, comes from authors like um, uh, uh, the author of Atomic Habits, who I can't believe, I can't think of his name right now, but James Clear there uh atomic habits is a wonderful book just about kind of the technology of habits right how how habits are created Um, and those you know understanding that better then you can see how technology is actually shaping our habits and creating habits for us that uh you know that we didn't really set out to create for ourselves in the first place like how frequently we check our phones right yep um Another author that I really like is Annie Duke. She was a world series of poker champion, and she's written some great books um, uh, thinking in bets and, and more recently how to decide. So, you know, behavior and habit are really the linchpins of success, certainly of successful investing. Um, but I think just success more generally. So I think, coming to understand uh, how the world really is, you know, um, increasingly uh, rooted in probability and statistics and thinking in bets and uh, and then how to make sure that you're developing and maintaining good habits that are going to pay off in the long run. You know, those are really the missing ingredients for many people who are interested in the markets. Um, and, uh, you know, it's more than just data and tools and information right because yep. in the end we're the ones who are making the decisions and pulling the triggers and and uh you know just like with eating well or exercising you know you need good financial habits yep and yeah uh, it all starts with the routine key. Yep. routine absolutely
0: yep all right. Well, this was excellent. And uh, I'm sure everyone has uh, a lot to think about if for nothing else <laughs> after this conversation. Wonderful. So Richard, I uh, thank you for your time and for yeah. uh, coming on the show today. Hey,
1: okay. Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Take care. Yeah, you got it. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Again, I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Richard Smith and uh, definitely keep on tuning in because we'll bring you more and more great content as the weeks go on. See you next time.
2: This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Caderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or a legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Caderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Derna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California insurance license number 0K04194.